Good morning, loved ones. Good morning. He was waiting for that. He wasn't going to be dismissed till, we, till I said, good morning, loved ones. Way to go. Yeah, he's getting fist bumps all over the place. That is awesome. Yeah. Anybody else that excited? I mean, that was, that was pretty good right there. It seemed like Christmas morning. Yes, good morning. What a, what a wonderful uh, time for us to be together. For our guest, I want to reiterate the welcome that Josh has already offered and say that we're so thankful that you're here. We know that we've got a lot of, uh, of our family who are off, and now you've come back to see family and be with us, college students and otherwise, and we're so glad that you're here and that you get to share in these, uh, hopefully in these next several days with your family and enjoy each other. Uh, if you're from this community and looking for a church home, we're so glad that you're here as well today. Um, do want to remind everybody that uh, for the next two Wednesday evenings, with Christmas on Wednesday and New Year's on Wednesday, we won't have services here. Uh, so enjoy your friends, enjoy your family, and, and uh, rest and celebrate during that time. And then we'll be back together on Wednesdays, uh, the second Wednesday of uh, January. All right, so how you doing? How you doing? How you doing in this season of celebration? This season of peace and good tidings? Uh, how are you feeling about that? How this season of family? Is it going well for you? I saw a, I saw a picture uh, this week that uh, I thought, you know, there may be some of us that feel this way. Gary, go ahead and put that picture up there. Those kids. Uh... This, these kids, they're, oh, they're holding the joy. They're holding joy. They got it spelled out. It's spelled correctly. But their faces are not saying what their hands are holding. Joy. I mean, if you were to, if you were to think of a meme for this, a meme for those of you who don't maybe recognize that word meme is, the, is like a little tagline on a photo like this that has an interpretation with it. It's interpreting the picture. Where's Hayden? Is Hayden in here? Hayden's not in here. Man, he's our meme. He's the meme king of the youth of East Sunshine. So, you know, he's putting out those memes. I don't know. I was kind of thinking if, if, if I were going to put a meme on this and put a tagline of interpretation, I'd say, when the kids find out there's a Christmas Eve service. And I'm just putting on to them what I felt when I was a kid. I was a little older than this, you know, uh, when I would have felt that. But that's how I would have reacted as a, as a kid. What? Christmas Eve? Christmas is on Sunday? What's God thinking? You know, that would have been what I was going through my head as a kid. I heard this week uh, from, a, from a young man. He's in his 20s, and he was uh, telling me uh, about... His grandfather, and uh, because it made me think of this could be this could be a meme as well somewhere somebody will try to find one I'm sure but he was telling me about uh, a tradition that his grandfather had had when when he would on Christmas morning with all these grandkids lots of grandkids in the family and uh, the grandfather would give uh, a, a good chunk of money to all these kids no matter what their ages were so like a hundred dollar bill or more and just it'd be cash which is what. Just a hint. This is that's what a lot of kids like. 
for, for Christmas. And he's handing out the cash, and the kids couldn't wait every year. So this little boy, he's grown up. Now he's at seven years old. He's remembering back. He, was, he said, I was about seven years old, and one Christmas, my grandfather announced to us that instead of giving us money, he was donating an animal to a poor country overseas in our name. So there was no cash. He said, my grandfather was giving somebody else a water buffalo in my name. And he said, all I could do was cry. So he burst into tears, crying that he didn't have his cash and that somewhere out in the world there was a water buffalo with his name on it. And he wasn't very happy about that. So these feelings of celebration that we have, that we bring with us, sometimes feelings of celebration, sometimes not. I do appreciate Bruce's prayer because these can be days of celebration and they can be days of sadness as well. Some of you have lost a loved one recently, since last Christmas perhaps, and it's a tough time for you. And so may the Prince of Peace give you peace. We had the scripture reading this morning, Philip read from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, it's, it's one of the great prophecies that we think about uh, as we ponder the arrival of the Son of God in the world. It certainly is one of the scriptures that is most often quoted uh, in this season. A, a light has dawned. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. He's, he's the one who's coming who will carry the government on his shoulders. In fact, he will have a greatness of government that won't end. There's one coming who's going to do that. There's one coming who will be called Wonderful Counselor. There's one coming who will be called Mighty God. There's one coming who will be called Everlasting Father. There's one coming who will be called the Prince of Peace. There's one coming who will establish and uphold justice and righteousness. There is one coming who will do this. And while the prophets of the 8th century, like Isaiah, the prophets were speaking into their own day and age. They were speaking into their own time. They were speaking a, a message that was contemporary to their context. And so this was a message for the people of Israel, of the people of Judah. And they would have heard these words and been expecting some fulfillment right around them. But when you start using words like mighty God, everlasting Father, then you begin to realize that it's more than just someone in the contemporary context and more than just a mere human king. There's someone else who's coming. These verses remind me of what John says. In John's the Gospel of John, in, in, in his description and his account of the birth of Jesus, it's not really the birth of Jesus, it's the coming of the Son of God, the one that he introduces as the Word. And he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And you connect that with Isaiah chapter 9 and you, and you think about the people expecting this great light. A light that will dawn, that will break into the darkness of their world 
and change the world. Micah chapter 5 is another prophecy from around the very same time. Micah follows up Isaiah. Now, Isaiah uh, would have been in, in a more of elite class of prophets. He was the prophet that, that gave counsel to King Hezekiah, for instance. He would have been in the inner circle of the, the political system of the day. So for him to prophesy about one who's coming who will bear the government on his shoulders, that's, that, was, that would have fit his role as an advisor to kings, as a prophet in those circles. Micah was not that kind of prophet. He comes from a small town and he's not in the political circles. So he can relate when he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Listen to this, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Now certainly there would have been people hearing this prophecy that would have been thinking about the contemporary context and hoping and, and, and longing for a king who would be from the line of David, who would come and, and would restore Israel to the glory days. It would, this was something that even carried into the New Testament. Are we going to be restored? Is Israel going to be restored to those golden years? And many people wondered this, and certainly there would have been longing for that among the people of God. But I think about this, this one who's coming from of old, from ancient times. And I think about John and his account once again of the coming of the Word, of the Son of God, when he says, in the beginning, in the beginning, it's the most ancient time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That one is coming. That one is coming from Bethlehem. But we need, to, we need to push pause here and just acknowledge something very important. As we think about stories of faith from the Old Testament, uh, I want to remind us of something very important here. It took great faith. It took great faith to believe that God would send the Messiah it took great faith to believe the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah and others. It took great faith. Uh, the people of God, the Jews, had experienced the truth of the prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Hosea and Joel and Amos, Obadiah, as they prophesied the doom 
that would come unless there was repentance. Some of the other prophets, like Jonah, they had prophesied to other peoples because Yahweh, the Lord, was in charge of the world, not just his people Israel. But these specific prophets, including Isaiah and Micah, these were the prophets who had spoken and gave warning to the people to say, don't continue to go down that path. Repent. Turn away from that. God is ready to receive you. He loves you. He doesn't want you to go down that. That is not good for you. It's not good for you to worship idols. It's not good for you to make treaties with these other countries. Come back to me. Worship me. Give me your hearts. I've given you my heart. Give me your heart. Come back. And they had experienced the truth of these prophecies because they had seen God follow through on the bad news that had been prophesied. They had experienced the defeat and the destruction and the exile, just as God had promised would happen if they did not turn and repent. But then, of course, good news comes again, and just as we've been in the last two weeks in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is one of those prophets who prophesies during this exile. He's one of the ones who was carried off into exile, and he's the one who prophesies that there's going to be not just the valley of dry bones that, that put flesh on them and live, that there's resurrection that God's going to bring. That resurrection is going to go all the way back to the land and there's going to be the rebuilding of walls. There's going to be the rebuilding of the temple. And when the temple is rebuilt, God says, I will come back and inhabit it once again. The spirit that departs from the temple returns because the very last words in the book of Ezekiel as he prophesies to his people and his presence, his very last words in the picture of a restored Jerusalem are these words. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Because from the beginning of time, God has always wanted to be with His people. Among His people. Walking in the garden as in the cool of the day. Genesis chapter 3. Daniel and Haggai and Zechariah prophesied the return of the people from exile. They prophesied restoration. They prophesied new beginnings. And the people saw it happen. They saw it happen. They had been encouraged by these prophets. They had been warned. They had been exhorted to keep on going when it looked tough that there would be protection. And things looked good for a while. But once they get back into their land and they begin to settle, they began to settle for the lesser things of the world once again. They began to settle for sacrifices that were blemished rather than giving the unblemished best of their flocks and their crops to God. They became corrupt once again. And so Malachi comes along as a prophet speaking into the corruption, speaking into their self-centeredness, their lack of zeal for God. And he warns them. And the bad news, of course, continued. And in some ways, maybe the worst part of it was that after Malachi prophesies, the screen goes dark. The voice of God, the word of the Lord, the waves of communication through his prophets to the people went silent. And there's nothing for a long time. 
And in the midst of this silence from God comes more bad news. As idolatrous, corrupt, evil emperors and armies, first led by Alexander the Great, and then divided among his generals who kept fighting for prestige and honor and land. And what Israel found was that they were in their land, but they didn't really own it. The hope of the people had risen again, though, because with, with these corrupt, evil emperors and generals taking over their land and desecrating the temple, they, they, they had the emergence of champions for God, champions of God's ways, and they could dream again that there would be restoration and hope in Israel because these champions would, be, would, raise, would rise up and they would call the people together and they would rebel against the evil and they would kick them out of the temple, they would kick them out of the land and they held it together for a little while. They had responded to the abomination of desolation. They rose up. They led the charge. And in the midst of that, people would go, well, well could this be the Messiah? What about Judas? What about Thutis? What about this prophet? What about this priest? What about this warrior? And, and so the waves of excitement about God raising up a Messiah had come and then they had gone. Victory didn't last. The peace of Israel was swallowed up by the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, which really only offered peace if the subjects of Rome didn't resist and were compliant. Messiahs had come and gone and still the people of Israel, almost exclusively called Jews by the time that Mary and Joseph and these shepherds who are part of this story come along. They were oppressed. They were in their land, but when they spoke of their land, they had to put it in quotation marks, our land, because it really wasn't theirs. They occupied it, but so did the Roman soldiers and the governors like Pilate. It took faith to believe the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah. It took faith to believe God for the Messiah. When you've seen God keep his prophecies before and you've seen the roller coaster ride and you've seen these, these warriors and these priests and these prophets rise and you think, here's the Messiah. No, there he is. Here he is. And the Messiahs come and go, you, you begin to wonder if there is ever going to be a Messiah. It took so much faith that some lost it. So much time had passed since the prophecies were spoken. So much hoping, so much believing, so much waiting, so much watching. But dark year after dark year, defeat after defeat diminished the expectation killed the dream by the time we get to the New Testament there are pockets of people who are keeping the dream alive the Pharisees were some of those who really kept it alive the Essenes were some others there were there were people here and there that had hoped but many of them had just lost hope they didn't fit in the holiness and righteousness movement of the Pharisees the separate ones as they were known so many people just felt left out. The wise man was right when he said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Because after a while, people stop watching. And then they stop waiting. 
And then they stop believing. And then they stop hoping. And how do you hope when the Romans are in charge, when they occupy and they dominate? There's political turmoil from an unbelieving government. What do you do when times get that rough? When would the Messiah come? Would the Messiah come at all? If he did come, how could the government be on his shoulders in this world? How would the darkness leave if the Romans wouldn't leave? Sin was rampant. How would the Messiah rid the world of sin? Brokenness was the norm. How would a Messiah restore justice and righteousness? Darkness was the backdrop of the world. How would a great light ever appear again? And it's into this silence, this waiting, that we read the stories from the New Testament. When in fact the characters of the stories (laughs) knew only of the Testament. There was no New Testament. They didn't realize they were being written into what we call the New Testament. They're just there as a part of the people of the Testament. They're just thinking back to some of those same prophecies from Isaiah and from Micah. They're wondering. Maybe some of them still wait and watch and hope and believe, but many others don't. Uh, Before we look at Uh, briefly one of these texts I want us to watch uh, the retelling of this story that we find in Matthew and Luke in particular and I want us to watch the retelling of this story which is told from the viewpoint of some children we're going to turn the volume up a little bit just to make sure you can hear it so I want you to hear this and it's it's light-hearted um But there's an important connection I want to make with these prophecies and the way the world was when this announcement of Jesus, the Son of God, is made. So let's watch this video.
I'll just, it's so good. So this video, um, this video is cute and funny. I've seen it a number of times and I, I laugh each time. But I like it because the connection it has with these prophecy texts and stories in Matthew, Luke, John, and the coming of the Son of God. So the connection is this. This silly 21st century video reminds us of how ridiculous and mundane and ordinary life was for Mary and Joseph and some shepherds when the Son of God appeared. When God, through an angel, tells Mary... Here's what's going to happen. We, on this side of things, can look back and think, well, she was expecting Gabriel any moment. That the shepherds were some of those who were watching. Well, yes, they were watching their sheep. And we're, we're reminded that the Son of God was born to ordinary people, maybe doing their laundry. They were, he was born and he came and was announced to outcasts, to people on the margins, these afterthoughts of society. And into mundane, ridiculous life, even in some ways it's unbelievable. And the last line as the camera fades uh, in this video, the last line is, the new baby is going to change the world. This little kid, the new baby, is going to change the world. J. Ellsworth Callis says that Christmas comes at an intersection between that which is sublimely holy and that which is utterly common. This intersection of the sublimely holy and the utterly common. 
And that's what we have in Luke 1 and 2 and in Matthew 1 and 2. It took faith to believe the prophecies of God for the Messiah. It took faith for Mary. In Luke chapter 1, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. He shows up out of nowhere and declares her favored. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Sounds like the prophecies out of Isaiah and Micah. Could those prophecies have been suddenly reeling through her head? Wait a minute. Wait, is this happening? Is this happening? Like, is this happening right now? Is this happening to me? Is this... Now, we're not in Bethlehem. Wait, what, what, wait a minute. What's going on in Mary's mind? Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. <laughs> so her first question is, how is this going to be since I'm a virgin? And then her last statement is, may this word be fulfilled. It takes faith for young Mary, ordinary girl. They don't say who Mary's mother and father are. It's a pretty big deal to give genealogies. There's no word of who her parents are. There's, there's no prestige attached to her. She's in Nazareth. She's in Galilee. Nazareth is, is rural, podunk. That's where she's from. And she's young. She's probably poor. And she's not married. This is a problem. It's a problem for Joseph because in Joseph, when he hears of this from Mary, he sees, okay, what well, she's expecting and he wants, he's a good man, he wants to put her away quietly, get a divorce before they're even married. And so in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It took faith for Joseph. It took faith for him to believe. I mean, think about what's going on here. It took faith when Mary is showing. It took faith for her to believe 
when whispers and gossip begin to stir around the small town of Nazareth. It took faith for Joseph to hold fast and to stay true to what he had received from the Lord himself in the midst of all this speculation. I mean, think about it from God's standpoint. If, if they're already married, well, everybody can just point, well, they had a baby the natural way. They're just claiming he's the son of God. It's going to take a miracle for something like this to happen. And here's the miracle. Mary believes it. Joseph believes it. How many others believed it? It took faith for the shepherds who in Luke chapter 2 are out in their, their, their fields and they're watching their sheep and an angel comes and says, there's a baby, you need to go see him. And then a choir of angels that sing to them and they, they realize, we need to do this. We need to go and see this one, this baby. They're given a sign, but it took faith for the shepherds. It took faith for the magi the Magi, not the people of God, not Jews, men from the East. We always imagine them being three because there's three gifts, so we always think of three wise men, but there's wise men. How many? We don't know how many, but there's a group of these Magi, and it took faith for them to believe from so far away to come all the way to Bethlehem to look for this new king that they've been told to find. They've seen the star. Surely they knew about those kinds of things, but this star comes to rest over where Jesus is. It took faith for Mary. It took faith for Joseph. It took faith for the shepherds. It took faith for the wise men. And one of the things that Luke says about Mary as she sees all of these things happening as the shepherds come to worship this baby is that she ponders these things in her heart. She ponders these things in her heart. So I want to give you a few things to ponder before we have a close of celebration today. First thing to ponder in your heart. God cares about the mundane, the ordinary, material details of life. He cares about the mundane, ordinary, material details of life, of your life. He cares about the job you're longing for. He cares about the bills you need to pay. He cares about the friendships you desire. He cares about the relationships you need to repair. He cares about the sickness, the ailment, the pain, the diagnosis, the prognosis. He cares about the details of your life. He cared enough about the matters of this world to become matter. The Son of God the eternal word taking on matter to say to the world your lives and the details of it matter to me the son of God was crawled inside human flesh he allowed Mary poor young girl to host him the eternal word in her womb. It takes faith to believe God for the Messiah. Will you believe? Will you believe that this Messiah cares about the mundane details of your life? Number two, ponder this. 
God takes away the sin of the world in ways that are unpredictable, ludicrous, foolish, contemptible, and weak unless we have eyes of faith like Mary, like Joseph, like the shepherds, like the wise men. Unless we say, may it be as you have said. Because when God takes away the sin of the world in ways that are unpredictable, nobody predicted this. They didn't predict the coming of the Son of God to a poor, nameless, afterthought couple, a girl, a carpenter, who would have to find their way to Bethlehem and then not even have royal treatment, but be sent away to a place where the animals could give them just enough room to, to have a baby for the night. He, he comes in that way, and nobody saw that coming. They would have thought lights. They would have thought the angels would have been shining on them. The star would have been inside the palace, not the barn. And this is what they would have imagined for the Messiah, for the Son of God, but he comes in this unpredictable, ludicrous, foolish, contemptible, weak way. God was not afraid of scandal and speculation. In fact, as Becca was sharing with us this past Wednesday in one of our Advent services, it, he's the one who created the scandal by coming to a virgin who was not yet married. He's not afraid so much so that when Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1, he mentions four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. He won't even say Bathsheba. Four women who had scandal and speculation as a part of their history, a part of their story. God is not afraid of it. He goes right into it. He comes down. Dave Adamson says this, There are a thousand times in history when a baby became a king, but there's only one time when a king became a baby. The king becomes a baby? <laughs> Ludicrous, contemptible, weak, foolish. Doesn't make sense. Can't believe it. You believe it if you have eyes of faith. If you believe the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah, you believe that God is going to do something that will make people talk, that will change the world, you can believe it. This fits the gospel. The God who comes to be with us. The almighty God who comes humbly and lowly as a servant, as a baby. You see, religion is about humans making their way up to God. And Christmas is about God making his way down to humans. That's gospel. We Christians can sometimes find ourselves in religion rather than gospel. Even in the Christmas season, we can think of God like Santa Claus, making a list, checking it twice, looking to see if it's been naughty or nice. He's looking, and that's the kind of God that many people have, that he's going to give me something good if I've been good. That we can think that we earn God's favor by our works when the reality is he gives us his favor because he's just gracious. Do you, do you, do you notice in the story of Mary in Luke chapter 1 that when he comes to her, her, the favor of God is pronounced on her before she's, there's anything that we know about her except that she lives in Nazareth. She hasn't earned this favor. God's favor is on her and she believes all the compliments about Mary are given after the fact as she responds in faith. God's favor with, was with her before she does anything. Does he know she has a heart of faith? I'm sure he does. Does, she, does he know that she's going to rejoice? Does he know that she's going to be the best caretaker possible for Jesus? I'm sure he does. 
but he pronounces favor over her before she's done anything. It's because of grace, and it takes faith to believe God for the Messiah, Savior. Will you believe God for that? And then third, let your pondering lead to worship. Pondering Christ leads to hope and joy. Joy and hope together keep us waiting. It keeps us watching, waiting for how the Messiah is going to break into our lives today, how he's going to break into the relationships, how he's going to break into this, this season and these coming days. How is he going to break into our lives in unpredictable, maybe even ludicrous, weak ways? Joy and hope lead to waiting and watching and believing. Worship Christ the Lord. Come, let us adore him. Would you stand with me, please? Let us marvel over the way he entered the world, the way that he will eventually die. This morning I came in early to, uh, to put the cross here uh, with the Christmas trees because, as you've heard me say before, I believe it's the best Christmas tree that we have. Decorated with the Son of God himself, the one who was without sin becoming sin for us and taking on human flesh, taking on brokenness, taking on weakness so that he could restore us and make us new. So come, let us adore him. Uh, we have our prayer teams who are ready to receive you and um, we want to invite you to adore the Lord. We, worshiping is what we do when we ponder what he's done for us in Christ but I want to encourage you to believe, to respond. If Christmas does anything, it calls us to respond. So let's sing, let's adore, let's behold the Lamb of God, this Son of God, together.